This is episode 94 from Panoramic Outdoors, and I'm Sheldon Grant. Thanks to everyone that's tuning in. Before we get started, I'd like to give out a huge thank you to Pit Barrel Barbecues. If you don't know what I'm talking about, or you've never tuned into a podcast before, I'll tell you about it right away quick. Go to www.pitbarrelcooker.com, go to their website, and check out everything that they have to offer. They have one of the best, if not the best, upright barrel-type smoking system that you can find on the market at a very low price. We've been using these things for probably oh, over a year and a half, and we smoke everything from wild meat to you know, kind of domestic meats, fruits, vegetables, desserts, anything we can get our hands on. We're trying it on the pit barrel, and um, it, it works really good. So go to www.pitbarrelcooker.com. One thing, on one other, thing, hang on. One thing, one thing I want to bust in here and say quick before you uh, leave pit barrel is uh, they also have like three different levels of barrels. You can get one like little junior and they have like a backcountry kit for it or something like that. The original, which is like your, your everyday family barbecue and they have the PBX now, which is this massive barrel. And uh, to give you a little hint of what it can, you can load up in there. If you, uh, anyone listens to, uh, to like Hacks podcast with us that he did last year around this time, his favorite song, 16 Chickens in the Tambourine, oh, 16 yeah. Chickens in the Pit Barrel, up to you, apparently. So check them out. Sorry to cut you yeah, off. That's, <laughs> no, no worries. That's that's new coming out of Pit Barrel, too, is that new barbecue. So maybe we can get our hands on one of them and, and see how many uh, racks of ribs we can cook with it. But, yeah, thanks to Pit Barrel for everything they've done for us. We appreciate your help. And you just heard the man, the myth, the legend himself, Chase Drylick, is tuning in. Chase, are you getting any rain over on the on the east side of the province? Oh man, we got poured on this morning for probably like right into the the afternoon here. Um, a solid two inches for sure is uh, kind of what I measured up over here. But um, you'd know two inches, eh? Oh, I know two inches is well. <laughs> a couple of hairs worth but it's like jody sees you laying in the driveway she's like what are you doing and you're like oh just measuring the puddles <laughs> <laughs> oh boy um anyways yeah what about yourself how many inches of rain did you get over there um i'm not too sure actually uh, it's been kind of raining misting all day today and we definitely need it i know we've talked about it in previous podcasts how dry it's been in manitoba and throughout canada to be honest like in the whole prairie region but um but yeah, it's uh, we we definitely need it. it. Might be the timing might be a little off for for the guys and and girls getting into harvest. But yeah, we we need the rain. It's it's nice to see and it, it cools everything off really well. Um, the one thing that I did notice though, like uh, with these, I know you refer to it in your area, but you get these big cracks in the ground for being so dry. Well, this rain is like almost like washing away lots of dirt and stuff like it because it's going into these cracks and creating huge mud holes and um there's actually um another thing too is that there was a warning about like overland flooding so it's kind of crazy how we can go from being in a drought to overland flooding in a in a week or so yeah i think the big thing there too is like not only the amount of rain that we've gotten but like like you said those cracks which i mean the moisture hasn't been there and the vegetation isn't there this year as much as other years right which is vegetation plays a big part in not only keeping the the ground together but also like just reducing um the the amount of floodwaters for like flash floods and stuff like that too right so it just reduces the the movement to water quite a bit right yeah 
Yeah, for sure. The other thing is since we're talking about weather, the other thing that we've been noticing or not noticing, but the one thing that we've been, um, that we have in Manitoba, that's been super crazy this summer. And I know it's like throughout the Western provinces is, is forest fires. One thing that I've been doing, um, I work for the, the utility in Manitoba, right? So um, I have to work alongside forest fire crews when it comes to some of the utility lines and hydro lines, putting them back up, whatever one's burned. But Chase, you've got a lot of experience with forest fires. And the one thing that I wanted to pick your brain about is like a forest fire doesn't necessarily, like in my mind, before I even seen a forest fire from the air, from a helicopter, as I just thought it like burns everything. But in a lot of spots, it almost looked like the ground didn't really get burnt. And it was like the treetops because it was like almost like fire rolling in the air, like, and burning the treetops. Is that correct? Like, have you seen that before? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I've, I've spent probably a solid seven years, um, primarily doing fire stuff in the, in the summertime, but I, I'm not, I haven't been, uh, educated. I, I'll say as like some of these other firefighters have been with the courses and like the, the, um, um, you know, fire behavior courses and stuff like that and, and what actually happens. But, um, I get to spend, I used to spend a lot of time with these folks and, uh, there, there's some crazy stuff that can happen, um, on forest fires. And one of the things is the fire just running across the crown of the trees, and uh, not touching the ground and another is like the fire running along the ground and not actually getting up into the tops of the trees and both can be like dangerous situations um and really can be difficult to fight because that that fire if it does get up in a spot where either the tops aren't burnt and it can run across the tops again or the bottom isn't burnt it can come back and, and burn back in the bottom if uh you know the the yeah, it just has to be fought really smart, and uh, there's uh, it just makes it difficult for for firefighters to extinguish those dirty dirty fires they call them. Yeah, and you know it's kind of crazy because I was flying with a, a company out of uh, around Lactabonny, and the pilot we had was a he was a veteran, let's say, and I think he told me that the one fire on the east side of Manitoba is the largest one that he's ha- have seen or worked on in 45 years. So. Just, you know, I, I just like to, on a, on a personal note, just thank everyone, uh, not only in Manitoba, but throughout our country that is out fighting fires. I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people that are, are involved and a lot of people that are putting feet on the ground to try to save whatever they can. And, uh, yeah, just thank you. And got a lot of appreciation from my end. Big time. It's, it's been a crazy summer out there. I know uh, a few of the, the guys that I've been talking to that, I used to fly with say that it's just it's nuts out there just in Manitoba and, and I, I know it's the same story across the other provinces as well and um, just to give you an idea I think somebody said that maybe you're telling me that 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 fire on the east side including it goes right into Ontario is like over 300,000 hectares oh yeah and uh, that's crazy yeah um, I remember Earlier on in my fire career, we did uh, we we're on a fire um, in northern Manitoba, and it was about seventy-two thousand hectares. And it took uh, I was I was doing a lot of the mapping of the fire, which we do we do uh, almost every morning, and uh, it would take me about an hour and a half to to map out that fire. So I could not imagine even what a three hundred thousand hectare fire would look like or how that would all work. That's insane. 
Yeah, no kidding, hey. Um, but yeah, like going forward, I won't be doing many podcasts because I got to go and do a little bit of uh, restoration work for for hydro. Um, so I'm leaving tomorrow night, which will be Saturday. But um, I've been packing, and the funny thing is great segue is i've been packing all my wool love gear because it's a change of seasons right like we're yeah it might be hot right now or it, it was a very hot summer but it's going to be cooling off and especially getting some of this rain i just feel fall in the air so i packed my long johns i packed my long sleeve shirts and i packed a bunch of different socks and this is exactly what we've been talking about if you haven't tuned into our previous podcast when we talk about wool love we talk about some of the benefits of wool love and one of them is having socks and they do not stink what is it called chase because i can never remember plus i'm really terrible at english but <laughs> antimicrobial right so that is like in the socks so you can wear those for days on end and your feet won't stink so i've packed a, quite a few pairs of those i've got long johns and i've got like i said long sleeve shirts which are all like merino wool so it'll keep you warm it'll keep you dry it'll actually keep you cool as well so um, not that I'm looking forward to be working in the bush for a, a lot of long days in a row but I am uh, looking forward to putting some of this some of this uh, wool love to the test again like I did last uh, hunting season so super excited for that and if you want to know what I'm talking about go to w-o-o-l.l-o-v-e that's wool.love on the old interweb and you can check out all the products that they have available. And they also have um, like bundles where you can bundle in long underwear and a shirt, let's say, and, and save some money. The other thing that we're doing right now with Panoramic Outdoors is we're giving you free gift cards to Wool Love. And all you'd have to do is message us on Instagram or Facebook or even email us and we'll send you an e-gift card. It doesn't come directly from us, but it comes directly from Wool Love. So they'll send you free money for their product. So you can't go wrong. Check out the website, wool.love on the old interweb. And thank you very much to everyone there. Uh, they've been helping our podcast out quite uh, tremendously over the last year. That's awesome. So I, I think you and I were talking earlier, you're looking probably close to like two months on this project coming up. You're there's there's like with uh with the fires obviously burnt out uh a ton of hydro lines supplying some of these remote communities and stuff like that so you got your work cut out for you kind of coming up but uh the, the sad thing is that you're going to miss some some early season archery but uh i think the the exciting thing is you got your uh you got your hands on a new crossbow here yeah i haven't got it dialed in exactly but uh why don't you tell us about the crossbow? Cause you know, you're going to be coming back right in time to be slinging some arrows with that thing out of the tree stand. Oh yeah. going to be slinging something. Um, this, the, the story about my crossbow is kind of a sad story is, well, it's a good story and it's a sad story, but the good story is I got hooked up at Heights archery hooked up with this new PSE. Uh, oh, it's, a, it's a few, like, I mean, it's, it's brand new to me. It's brand new out of the box, but it's, I think it's been on the market for, for a few years or a year and a bit. I did a little bit of research on it and I've kept it in the box. My plan was to do a video of basically unboxing it and putting it together and shooting the first arrow right out of the box to see what it's, what it's shooting at. I haven't got around to it. So, and then all of a sudden this project gets thrown on, on my table. So now I'm like almost stressing out about it. Like, okay, I'm going to come out of uh, you know, this, this long stint of work and I still got to put this crossbow together. I still got to shoot it and then be ready for, for opener or for, you know, muzzleloader season or crossbow season. 
So I, I am kind of getting worried about it, but at the same time, I'm very excited to use it. It, it looks like a really cool um, setup. Um, I've watched a couple videos on YouTube and did a little bit of research on it. And from what I can tell, I mean, for a $600 out of the box bow, you can at 180 feet per second. I mean, you can be shooting it right out of the box. So I'm super excited to get it going. Um, but yeah, it's going to be on my, uh, and it's all new to me. I've never shot, I've never shot anything with crossbow. So it's going to be an awesome little season, I think. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting because, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've never had a desire to shoot a crossbow, but, um, you were talking about your dad has one and how it's, it's kind of different to shoot and it's neat and it's, it's growing, kind of grown on you. And, um, I, I'm almost kind of thinking like, I'm rooting for you, man. I want to see this thing perform. I want to see you put it together and I want to see things come together for you this fall, especially now after, you know, you're going to be missing the, the first, uh, opening kind of month here for archery season. And, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that when you come back, things are just flowing for you back in the, in the hunting woods. Yeah, for sure. And, and that was the other thing. Like if, have you ever gone back to our intro podcast episode, like our very first episode, I did mention there that I'd like to buy myself a new muzzleloader. Excuse me. And this year I had the opportunity to maybe do that. Um, but yeah, like you said, my dad's been shooting um, a crossbow. I've shot it a few times and I just started thinking about it. Like I really do love like muzzleload uh, shooting or hunting, but at the same time, like it, it, there's a lot of work to it as in, you know, you're always, uh, you know, you got to, be target shooting you're you always got to keep that gun clean there's chances of misfire there's there's certain things unless you're in like a really top of the line gun there's you know maybe you can take some of those variables out of it but with it seems like with this crossbow you can shoot you know 70 80 up to 100 yards maybe even farther once you get more experience or maybe a better bow but you got your bolts that you can reuse um, it's quiet. It's just, there's a lot of things that I really like about it, com it to compare it to a muzzleloader just because it's the same season. Right. So I guess at the, at the end of the day, yeah, I'm super stoked to get out there with it. And I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to getting done work here so I can, I can spend some time in the woods with it. Yeah. That's awesome. You know what? That's one thing I've never thought about is the, the, the like usability of it compared to a muzzleloader and the fact that you can just take it out, shoot it for 15 minutes at the end of a, a work day or whatever, and you don't have to take it back and clean it and spend another hour mucking around with that. Like, like you do with a muzzleloader kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know much about it, so I'm very, like, I'm looking forward to learning about it. I know my, my dad picked his up uh, last year, maybe, or two years ago, and he's still kind of learning with maintenance and you know just looking after it and stuff like that and you know like waxing the strings and you know we're doing our research and it's kind of neat like uh, when it comes to the outdoor world it almost seems like you almost get stagnant with the three seasons is like archery muzzleloader and rifle mm -hmm. and when you can bring something else in to kind of almost brush your skills or find new skills or and learn new stuff about the outdoors with a different piece of equipment it almost brings out a, a whole new uh, a whole new life to uh, to a season so I'm, I'm looking forward to it that's awesome. That's amazing. And if you want to get to yourself a crossbow, head over to Heights Outdoors in Winnipeg there. Um, they got them. They got all kinds of stuff, obviously stacked up with archery equipment there. And uh, their firearm game is next to um, second to none. That's what I'm trying to say. They got a shit ton of guns there, a bunch of ammo, reloading stuff. And, uh, you know, you get that sh uh, small shop 
uh, treatment while you're there as well. So um, head down there, they'll treat you good and uh, you won't leave disappointed. What else you got on the docket, buddy? Oh, not much, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> just, yeah, I was I was getting ready for fall, and some things change, obviously, in life, so I'm getting ready to go to work. But other than that, no, I've just uh, been listening to you and Tristan hammer down the podcast. I've been really enjoying listening to you guys, and, uh, yeah, it's been, been fairly slow other than work for me. Well, that's, uh, yeah, on my end here, you know, we're just still kind of rolling out from the move. Uh, for all the listeners out there, for everyone that's that's ordered something picked up in St. Andrews, things are now moved to Oak Bank. So uh, we can also do pickup in Lockport. Um, it might not be as quick of a turnaround for you guys, but uh, we can certainly do it there if it's if it's closer for everybody. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a, a shift you're in all, tides you're for all me moved here. In? Not really. There's still a bunch of boxes sitting that we gotta unpack, but uh, and organize, and the garage is a mess and all that. But um, yeah. It'll all come with time, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting out in the woods here real soon. Um, well, this is the crazy thing, Chase, because uh, I cut you off about four times this podcast. I'm going to do it one more time on the intro. Um, but that's part of our business plan, right, with Panoramic Outdoors. If no one knows, we have a website, www.panoramicoutdoors.com, and we have free pickup, uh, with, which used to be in St. Andrews. So part of our business plan is to get Chase to move every two years all the way around the city so that <laughs> – we can get new customers. So right now we're in the Oak bank phase. So if anybody needs a, needs a hoodie or a t-shirt or whatever, order it and you can just drive to Oak bank, pick it up. There you go. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm just looking forward to, uh, you know, opening day in the deer was, I still got a little prep work to do. still got some blinds set up. Uh, I haven't even put a trail cam out yet, but the, uh, the areas that we, we hunt are, um, I mean, they're pretty consistent with, the, the deer activity and, and stuff like that. So the only difference is that we just kind of, there might be a couple new, new faces in the crowd out there that we don't know about, but uh, I think we're still going to focus on some of the same areas for preseason. And, um, yeah, I hope, I hope we, uh, you know, get lucky, got some three tags to fill in the, the area that I'm hunting. So, um, my plan is to get a doe early, hopefully, or a buck if was, I have the opportunity, that- but that was my question I was going to ask you because in my area where I hunt in the Western part of the province, we, we got the antlerless tag coming out. And I guess my question that you kind of answered is like, what deer are you going to take first? And I'm almost hesitant to, you know, shoot a doe maybe early. Like I, I would like to, you know, yeah, get that secured meat in the freezer. But at the same time, I, it's like, do you have to risk? And this may be a question for our listeners too. You can message us, but maybe a question for chase too. But do you almost risk screwing up a hunting spot by shooting a doe? Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you're you're trying to be concealed and you're you're playing the wind every night, you might only get into that tree stand a few nights a week. And and you is, is I don't know. Can you spoil a tree stand by shooting a doe early or no? I don't think so. I, Not unless there's uh like that the target buck is close by and and you like spook him out of there. Even if you do spook him out of there, he still his home range. I think he's going to come back. Um, we've we've shot deer out of like Chris has shot, shot a deer there last year and, uh, and there's still deer hanging around. So I think if you do it correctly, I mean, the life and death is still part of nature. Deer still die out there. They still live in the same area. Right. Um, whether it's from the bow or whether it's from a coyote or something else, but, 
Um, we generally try to not leave a gut pile in that area if we're still going to hunt it. But I mean, we've, we've in the past and in, in uh, the big woods, you know, we're not leaving the guts in, dragging a deer out a mile. So we'll gun them out there and we've killed deer out of the same tree stand later that week kind of thing. So it's, I don't know, I guess it depends how it all goes down is what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah and I, I would agree with you hundred percent. Like I've in areas where we hunt, we kind of hunt in close proximity. Like we have tree stands within, you know, a couple hundred yards of each other, just strictly for archery hunting. And, and I have no same thing. Like we've, we've shot deer out of tree stands and then, you know, the next day have good activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think it's a question that I think a lot of people ask, right? Like, can you do like, does that mess something up? And if it was, if it was my answer, like, I just don't know if I would personally shoot a doe with my bow when I know there's a nice, you know, a nice buck in the area. I, I think I would just wait it out. And, um, yeah, I think that would be my answer, but yeah, right on. I think my biggest issue is that I haven't shot anything for a while with my bow and yeah. I would like to just gain my confidence back up with it with, uh, besides just shooting targets. So I think getting a doe under the belt will, uh, will certainly help me with that. And hopefully rolls through the rest of the season with confidence, knock on wood. That's how it goes down. Maybe day one. Mr. Big shows up, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. The big two inch. Um, the last podcast, we, <laughs> the 11 that pointer, we did, the 11 pointer, the last podcast that you got, you and Tristan did with, uh, Mark, Mark, right. Yeah. Um, that was a f- awesome one. And not only because we're using the iHunter app, it's, it was good to like get some of the reasoning behind certain ideas and certain aspects of the app like why you're paying the money for what you're paying, like what are you getting for mm-hmm. what you're paying for? You guys did an awesome job and like applaud you guys. But, um, I Hunter is, is obviously in our arsenals. Do you want to maybe just run down a few things that uh, you've been using with I Hunter here in the last couple of weeks for your pre-scouting? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm just going to circle around back to that podcast that you were, you were mentioning too. And, and like, there's, there's always a lot of question about something that you don't know a lot about. So people are always asking questions. If you want, if you have, questions about iHunter certainly give us a shout we'll give you our honest opinion you can give Mark Stenroos a shout on his Instagram um, he's always willing to chat about stuff and uh, we love it if you listen to that last podcast there's a lot of great information like Sheldon said about um, kind of the ins and outs of the apps beyond just like the user interface of it of it um, but um, one cool thing about uh, the iHunter app and it's kind of firing up right now is like i'm starting to get like some some waypoints from from buddies and like tristan kind of sending me stuff they're doing some e-scouting or they're actually out on like the piece of property that they want to hunt and they'll like send me a, a location and be like how does this look what do you think from from what you can see kind of thing like should i set up here kind of thing and it's like it's exciting man it's build up to hunting season and now we're communicating this through like a streamline app where i can see exactly where they are we can message back and forth and i can revisit these conversations and and look through all these waypoints and and uh like mark said we can do live kind of feeds where you know exactly where that person is through the app kind of thing so um that's super cool I love it. I've been doing uh, quite a bit of e-scouting for it for our moose hunting trip coming up. And uh, I don't know, man. I just, 
It's an okay, amazing a few, tool. A few things before you give out all the information on where you can find it and all that stuff. But a lot of people that are listening or even my friends and family have kind of talked about the iHunter app and they're like, oh yeah, it would be great for, you know, deer, you, you deer hunters, you elk hunters, you moose hunters. But let me tell you, I find a really big benefit for bird hunting with that app. And it's because of my scouting. And um, for anybody that's bird hunting, I think there's one thing that's common between bird hunters, especially waterfowl, migratory waterfowl, is that you're driving a lot of miles to find that perfect field, the perfect setup, etc. Now, in the last couple of years, I've been using iHunter and I use it for that exact thing for bird hunting. And that's almost like the main reason I use iHunter almost is for waterfowl. And it's like when you're driving around, even in the middle of summer and you see those pea fields, cornfields, whatever it may be, I mark those, especially when I have permission, say on a couple guys, different properties um, that might have, you know, hundreds of acres or thousands of acres that I'm allowed to hunt on, but I don't normally hunt on them. Mm-hmm. I, and you know, you're driving around and I'll just basically set pins on these fields that say peas, corn, etc. And then later on in the fall, I'll revisit those fields and I'll never, you know, you'd never forget where that is, etc. And then not only that, what I found super handy is like, you'd get into say a, a section, half section of corn uh, in the late season, I would actually mark where the approaches were to enter that field so that like when you're coming in um late at like sorry not late at night um early in the morning to go and set up in a dark you know exactly where that approach is at, at the end of the field and you'll never forget because it's on your app so it's not just for elk hunter deer hunter like it you can use it for anything tristan referred to it in the episode like he uses it for fishing mm-hmm. i i'm a big and you were talking about it and, and tristan about using it for hiking and car like whatever it's a great app to use for in the outdoors just in general for you waterfowlers out there i would highly suggest getting either iHunter or it's a very similar app because it'll help you and uh help you find fields help you scout fields and, and even relay message you can't make it out that day because of whatever reason you can send that to your buddy and say hey man this cornfield's good um this and not only that have landowner maps overlay on it and be like you know chase dry owns this field give him a call yeah it's super cool it's amazing. It's funny that you talk about waterfowl too. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about situations back where, where I could have used it. And there's this one field that we hunt where there is no real discerning line between the two different properties and one property we have permission on and the other property we don't have permission on. And sometimes, uh, in the wee hours of the morning, you know, you can't tell, um, what what kind of stubble you're in you know what i mean the head through the headlights kind of thing if they're both harvested so i think that would be a just a a perfect opportunity to say all right well we're on the right side of the property line here we're not set up 10 feet into the wrong field etc etc so um just just you know it's perfect for avoiding opportunity or situations like that so yeah absolutely um, if, if you guys are interested in the app, obviously it's available on your smartphones, check them out. If you're interested in 30% off the public landowner subscription, go to web.ihunter.com and, uh, that'll get you, uh, and type in the, the code panoramic 30 and that'll get you 30% off the, uh, the public landowners There's three different levels of the app. Obviously the base app, the public landowner subscription and the landowner maps, which you, which you buy by the map. So like I always say, cheaper than a case of beer and it's a amazing tool to have in your pocket and we use it a lot. 
So, and if you guys are, are, uh, you missed out on the, where to find all this, this stuff, check out the, uh, the show notes on this, these episodes or any episode, and, uh, you'll find the information for all the stuff we're chatting about websites and promo codes. Right on buddy. Now that we've paid all the bills, I think that we need to get into the main part of this podcast, unless you have anything else to say, Chase, but, um, we have TJ Schwanky on. And um, what a wonderful talk we had with him. He's from Alberta, Canada. He talks a, a lot about, um, you know, what how he got into the media world, um, about wildlife-friendly fencing. And then we kind of finished the podcast off with a little bit of elk talk. So it was a well-rounded conversation, and I'm very excited to, uh, to, to fire this one off. And then not only that, get him back on eventually, because he, he is a very well-spoken dude and very happy to have him on. Mm-hmm. Old Manitoba hometown fella too so it's oh, uh, yeah from Winnipeg yeah. yeah I did not know that so it's pretty awesome but uh man I, I really enjoyed this conversation with TJ and I think the cool thing that I, I love having conversations with these um with the the guys that have been in the outdoors for for so long for well, people that have been in the outdoors for so long it's just you know the they've they've seen so much more than I have and they they have a a broad perspective on you know just just everything outdoors related so um i love walking away with from these conversations and hearing their perspective on all that and just everything they have to offer so yeah strap in folks this is a good one so joining us today on the panoramic outdoors podcast we have tj swanky TJ, how you doing? I'm doing very well, guys. Thank you. Right on. I'm just, I'm just uh, a little envious of your office there. There's, a, there's a <laughs> lot of sheep hanging around. There's a, a pronghorn and a, what else you got up there? Is that a? Uh, there's a, a chamois, a tar, yeah. mountain goat. Yeah, I think there's yeah, a yeah. Marco Polo in the background there. Oh man. We don't really have a trophy room at our house. We kind of have a trophy house. It's not a big house, but it's, uh, it's well appointed. Oh, that's amazing. It's a little sneak peek into your life for sure right there. That's awesome. Um, where are you tuning in from right now with us? Where's home uh, for you? I live, yeah, I live just west of Calgary in Cochrane, Alberta. So this is my day-to-day office right here. Right on. And uh, what's what's kind of, uh, what are you up to these days? Are you kind of prepping for hunts? Or are you just getting back? Or what's, uh, you know, I know you do a lot of international travel. You're into fishing and stuff. What's uh, Where did we catch you right now? Uh, right now I just finished editing our television season for the year. So that was kind of nice to get that out of the way. Uh, I do some contract work for the Alberta Fish and Game Association. We do some wildlife friendly fencing projects. So I'm kind of right in the middle of those right now, do a fair bit of magazine writing and that's kind of ongoing throughout the year. And we're just kind of planning for our upcoming hunting season. And unfortunately COVID's kind of kept us home for the last 18 months. So nothing really planned till I guess March. So, but we'll do a lot of hunting around home. We're pretty blessed. We live, you know, 15 or 20 minutes from great whitetail elk, moose, mule deer, you name it kind of thing. So we got a bunch of trail cams out do lots of scouting stuff like that. Awesome. Sounds like you're definitely keeping busy there. Yeah. So, uh, before we get too deep into the, the meat and potatoes of this, we'll, we'll start off with our five burning questions for you and, uh, answer them as you feel short okay. long answer whatever you want so first and foremost what's your uh what's your favorite meal and, and what's going to be uh what are you going to pair that with for a drink 
<laughs> my favorite meal is a six minute elk steak and we cook elk steaks at between 600 and 700 degrees Ooh. on a propane grill and two minutes two minutes two minutes take them off and they are just perfectly rare on the outside but they get a beautiful char on the outside and slather them in butter and things like that so always heart healthy eating here of course <laughs> and <laughs> that probably goes really nice with a nice malbec red wine nice nice the malbec's good for the heart right it, exactly bucks. depends how you measure it but uh <laughs> I, I was kind of thinking you were talking about a minute, minute steak there, but uh, you, you definitely got me perked up with the uh, the six seven hundred degree grill and just a nice kind of rare medium rare there. That's awesome. Oh, it's it's beautiful. How how thick of a steak are we talking here? Uh, about inch and a half, two inches. Perfect. That's yeah. awesome, man. Uh, I'm not too sure how big of a music fan you are, but uh, if you could uh, go see one concert from a banner or artists alive or dead who would you go see ah and i'm not a huge music fan I, I will admit to that but i do listen to both kinds of music country and western so um <laughs> <laughs> probably you know who i would really love to see is garth brooks i really would nice yeah he's definitely uh a great great artist great entertainer and uh now now kind of steering a little bit towards the uh the outdoorsy end for you here if you had one last rifle caliber to shoot for the rest of your life, what would you be? What would be in the gun safe? Oh man, if I was staying in North America, it would definitely be a 338 Win Mag. Um, if I was still traveling the world with Africa included, it would have to be a 375 H and H. Nice, nice. What's the uh, what's the motivation behind the 338? Uh, it's just a great all-round cartridge i mean it's it's a great long-range cartridge you know it's it's a big enough bullet if you're going to be hunting moose or you know bison or grizzly bears things like that but you know very very capable on deer and antelope as well so it, i just like the versatility of it yeah right on and i've seen uh some of your stuff on youtube you got there you're talking about the uh the like mono metal bullets and you, you dive into the the 338 a little bit on on some of those um videos so yeah, I've been accused of being a bullet geek every once in a while. So, ah, hey, you know what? There's nothing wrong with a little bit tossing a little bit of knowledge around. Um, our fourth question for you, and uh, I know you're you're a bit of an all-around outdoors man here. Um, what's your favorite fish to go after? My favorite fish to go after has to be cutthroat trout, which is kind of weird because I did write a book on walleye fishing and I fished professionally on the walleye trail for years, but cutthroat trout and and primarily well not primarily it's because of where they live we do a lot of high mountain trips you know up above eight thousand feet kind of thing and there's really only one fish you're going to find up there and that's cutties and just being in them throwing a dry fly for them surrounded by the mountains it just doesn't get any better oh it sounds amazing i uh i went for a trip out west uh quite a few years ago now and i, was, I was, had intentions of of finding some cutthroat but obviously didn't do my homework well enough and uh i wasn't able to latch on to any but I was recently reading one of your articles on cutthroats, and let me tell you, that fire is ignited again to get back out there and, and go looking for some. So, um, I can steer you in the right direction if you get this way. So, right on, perfect. Well, I'll be looking you up if I next time I get get out that way. And uh, our last question for you is, um, what book is on your nightstand right now or coffee table? Um, I'm actually reading a book about. Um, desert sheep and the Syrian Indians in Mexico. 
and uh, it's 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 kind of a uh, it's it's more of a journal than a, an actual book that was written, but um, it's written by Sheldon, and it's it's just a really neat. Uh, time. This was like way back in the, the early 1900s when they were collecting specimens for natural history museums. And um, I got fortunate enough to go on a desert sheep hunt uh, in Mexico in 2020, and we hunted with the Siri Indians. So there's kind of a, a pretty neat uh, tie to that book right now. No kidding. That's an amazing connection. That sounds like an awesome experience as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's the five burners for you. And uh, we're kind of going to get into a little more of the T.J. Schwanky story. Did I, did I pronounce that correctly? You, you did, and you're one of the few, so kudos to you for that. <laughs> All right. I'm usually terrible for names, so I'm glad <laughs> I nailed it. Um, I'm kind of interested. You know, you're, you're, uh, you've been immersed in the outdoors for quite some time here, but um, we see lots of your current content. You can also find some of your like older content on, uh, on the web as well. And uh, I haven't quite dove fully into that yet, but I, I am interested and it looks interesting. But what's your, what was your first introduction to the outdoors? Uh, I mean, I've been involved, like my, my parents and my grandparents were big anglers. So, I mean, I've been kind of fishing all my life. Um, I had virtually no hunting influence in my background though. So it really wasn't until I was about 16 years old and could drive myself that um, I went hunting. And back then, as you know, as 16, you could go on your own. So, and I have no idea what drove that hunting passion, but I mean, they have pictures of me when I was two and three years old and I'd have my, you know, little pretend gun and my binoculars looking for animals and whatever drove that it was in me. And, and I believe, you know, some people are just born to be hunters and, and I really think I was. So I said, kind of drove it. And um, what got me into the industry, I guess, was in 1986, I decided I was going to be a magazine writer no experience, never written for magazines, barely passed English in high school, but I was going to be a writer and sent a couple manuscripts into a couple magazines that were way above my pay grade. And one of them happened to be North American Whitetail. And they accepted my article and kind of went from there. And I guess now I've published close to 1200 magazine pieces over the years. That's amazing. Awesome. Did, uh, is that Calgary area? Is that where you grew up? Was that home, home base for you? No, I was actually born in Winnipeg and stayed there till uh, I was about 25 and then moved from Winnipeg, uh, came out to uh, Alberta just on a vacation. And I think we saw two bighorn sheep on that trip and went home and packed my bags and decided I'm moving to Alberta. I want to be a sheep hunter and going west. Uh, yeah, that's really how I ended up here. No job, no nothing. But I was coming out here to be a sheep hunter. Oh, man, that's amazing. It's, uh, it's funny that you, you kind of talk about the relationship of, about like, uh, fishing to hunting. And then, um, and in a lot of ways, I think fishing is similar to hunting, but you often find more hunters that are fishermen than fishermen that are hunters because I would but, agree. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, on the fishing side of things, you still are, you know, essentially hunting something just in a different fashion, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, my career started in fishing. Um, I, I wrote about fishing. I fished walleye tournaments pretty extensively in the late eighties, early nineties, wrote a book on walleye fishing. And my first introduction into television, we did a, um, a television show out of Regina. I did with a fellow named Bob Kirkpatrick and we did a fishing show there for five years. And that was kind of how I got my feet wet in the TV industry. And I kind of used that experience to really gain a lot of knowledge about the production side of television and then in 1999 started outdoor quest tv which at the time was a combination fishing hunting show um and it just 
eventually morphed into just a straight hunting show and mm-hmm. uh, we're in our 21st season of airing now i guess are you one one of the the uh oldest uh tv shows airing on uh outdoor tv right now well, I'm glad you said oldest TV shows because uh, <laughs> just, just for the just for the record, Shockey is older than me, but his television show isn't as old as ours. So, yeah, uh, Vanessa just corrected me here too. We're, we're 22 years on air, so yeah, we are the longest running hunting show in Canada, and we're right up there with uh, you know most of the ones in the U.S. too. Yeah, that's amazing. That's that's we, a huge. Feat. And we started airing in the U.S. when we first started with Outdoor Quest TV. There was no place to air a hunting show in Canada, so yeah. we aired on Outdoor Channel down in the U.S. for three or four years, um, you know, until there was a network in Canada that would air us. Yeah, that's a tough network to break into as well. That's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm curious. You do a lot of international hunting. Um, you know, New Zealand. Um, obviously, Africa is is a big part of your life. Was that always something that you had your sights set on or how did that become part of your life? <laughs> no, I, um, it really didn't. I mean, I was a born and bred North American hunter. And uh, when Vanessa and I got together, she really had a desire to travel and um, and hunt. And she wasn't a hunter when I met her, but uh, she quickly became one. And it just kind of seemed to naturally morph into that. And boy, you know, since 2009, when we did um, a trip to Namibia, um, I don't know, we've probably been on, you know, 40 or 50 international hunts. Now, you know, we've, I've been fortunate enough to hunt uh, all six continents that allow hunting. Antarctica doesn't, but uh, if they ever open penguins, maybe we'll go there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, and I guess the, the big thing for me in international hunting, I mean, it's, it is about the hunt, but it, it's so much about the experience. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I've got addicted to is, is that experience. And it just, the first time I went to Africa, I like to tell people this, it was like being six years old again. I didn't have a clue what the animals were. I didn't have a clue what the bugs were, the trees were, anything else. And it was just like a six-year-old going, what's that? What's that? What's that? And I never want to lose you know, that, I mean, we get pretty familiar with we're hunting at home sometimes and, you know, and unfortunately take what we have for granted. I mean, we have some of the best hunting in the world right here, mm-hmm. but every time I go abroad, it, it just makes me realize like how cool it is to be a hunter and just experience. So I just want to experience everything. Like when we go to a destination to hunt, it's very little about the species we're hunting and everything about the destination we're going to. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, that's a, that's a good perspective to, uh, to go into stuff too. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I have enough um, goals right now here at home to try and focus on. And uh, I imagine at some point I'll get to a point where I might want to look for something different and uh, might transition that way. But um, right now, kind of the home home range is on the on the focus. But um, I'm curious, what's your what's your favorite uh, f- foreign species to go after? Oh, Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I mean, and I would say no. I mean, it's it's whatever I'm hunting on that trip. Like, I, it's it's so amazing just to go different places and and hunt with people who really know uh, the animals there and, and just to learn about them. So to have a, I mean, obviously we go to Africa a lot. I mean, Africa's just super cool. And, uh, we've kind of found some niche hunts in Africa that, you know, a lot of people don't know about. We found a lot of free range hunting over there, which a lot of people don't believe even exists anymore. Right. And, uh, you know, we found some tremendous and a lot of it's just like hunting here in a lot of ways other than you know there's 44 different species of animals you can hunt but you know same thing going to farmers and ranchers places asking for permission you know hunting animals that are on their place so yeah i mean i've been to i think i've done 11 hunts in africa now and um you know definitely more planned but i don't know i want to see 
the world. So I, I don't want to, I guess, pigeonhole myself into a favorite. And, but if I guess I had to, it would be mountain species. Like I love hunting the mountains. Right. And we've got a trip booked in March to hunt in Spain for the Ibex there. There's four species of Ibex in Spain and our plan is to hunt all four of them over a couple of weeks. So, and more okay. so just to see the entire country. Man, that's intense. That's, uh, I've heard some horror stories of the, uh, the Ibex hunted man where guys are just pretty much crawling down the mountain. It's, it's yeah. Of- I mean, I hunted, um, Ibex in Kyrgyzstan and it was definitely some of the most intense mountains I've been on. And the political climate was a little sketchy at the time. And you know, <laughs> there was, there was a lot of things going on there, but, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's, I'm a kind of a person who can kind of just go with the flow and mm-hmm. you have to be able to put your life in somebody else's hands at that point and hope they take care of you. And you know, that's kind of one thing I found in the hunting community is, you know, you are pretty well connected, pretty well looked after when you go, you know, some of these places that maybe you probably shouldn't be like when, when we landed in Kyrgyzstan, they were actually evacuating all the Americans, Canadians and um, Australians. There's a bunch of gold mines there and there was an election coming up and they weren't really sure how the election was going to go and everything else. And, right. you know, there'd just been a coup there like three years earlier and you could still see all the bullet holes and downtown and everything. So Jeez. yeah, those are the, those are the amazing experiences when you get home alive. Yeah. No kidding. It really makes you thankful to, <laughs> to kind of be where we're at. Yeah. For sure. Um, now you mentioned, uh, a little bit earlier about this, this wildlife friendly fencing that you've been working on, on with the Alberta Fish and Game Association. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, a really neat project. So I think it was about 12 years ago or 13 years ago, actually, the Alberta Fish and Game Association got together with the Department of National Defense on one of the big military bases out here and, uh, made the fences more wildlife friendly there is specifically for antelope or pronghorn and so pronghorn typically won't jump a fence I and mean, it's, it's extremely extremely rare so what they do is crawl under but they need about 16 or 18 inches to get under so first of all the fence has to be at that but what they're finding is pronghorn have very brittle hair and they also have very thin skin so when they were crawling underneath barbed wire they were getting like large wounds on their backs and you know getting permanent hair loss which could impact their winter survival and you know anybody who's hunted pronghorn down here has seen pronghorn with just massive patches of hair missing from their back and big scars on there so mm-hmm. uh, the thought was to replace that bottom strand with smooth wire and set it at 18 inches and so they had a guy that kind of uh, coordinated the project for the first year and it didn't work out I, I guess quite as well as they'd hoped so a buddy of mine was kind of involved and he asked me hey would you like to do this for a year and I'm like well yeah I guess so I don't know I don't really know anything about it but we'll try it and uh, that was 12 years ago so <laughs> the whole project other than myself and one staff from the Alberta Conservation Association is done by volunteers so oh, amazing all the hard work is done by volunteers so we'll have anywhere between Oh, 12 and 20 volunteers on a project. We do three projects a year. And, you know, this is kind of a combination of hunters and non-hunters and city people and rural people. And it's just kind of all these people coming together for one common cause, which to me is absolutely amazing. So, you know, it, it's great for the pronghorn. Uh, we started setting a lot of the fences. The, we've been spacing the wires above so they're more friendly for deer and elk to jump over and things like that as well. 
but it's just this coming together of hunters, non-hunters, landowners. Um, it's just become this real community all working for conservation. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just really enjoyed the project. We've had the projects from hell this year though. Um, temperatures have been unbelievable. Last project or two projects ago, it was up 37 degrees a couple of days. Um, last project we had rain and there's all kinds of rattlesnakes and everything else. Jeez. And you never hear one complaint from the volunteers they're they're absolutely spectacular so right now we're doing three projects a year and as long as we keep getting uh, our funding through grants none of this is government funded or anything it all comes from grants from nonprofit organizations uh, virtually all of it comes from hunter and angler dollars is how it's funded so as long as we keep getting our money to do it i'm i'm pretty happy to keep doing it it's it's a great project yeah it's amazing uh, the fact that you have all those different interest groups coming together and uh working together is is an amazing thing like you said and it's it's um man i just feel like it's crazy times in the world right now and it's so much separatism that it's it's frustrating that nobody yeah. can just be like okay well let's work together on this even though we might not have all the same ideas or the same beliefs or whatever we can all work together to make what we do enjoy better well, and absolutely. And when we first started the project, we had one group, um, an artist collective from Calgary, great people, but I would venture to say some of them were probably anti-hunting when they started, but, you know, just standing beside hunters in the field, sweating in 36 degree temperatures, all working for a common cause. I think that why not, let's just say, I think I know they came to understand what we do as hunters better, but I think the hunters also started to realize, you know what, we need to portray ourselves a little better mm -hmm. to these people and you know i've always been one that you're never going to change an anti-hunter's mind but i'll tell you what when you get them working in the field together all working for a common goal i think it's possible oh for sure and i i think i think the, the important thing is to to go into these situations or conversations with with people who might not be on the same level as you are and just have those conversations be open about it and don't be don't try and attack and be this huge defender just have open conversations about things i think it's it's easy for people to understand each other that way yeah and i think landowners have gained a real appreciation too for you know what hunters do as well because uh, you know not only are we modifying these fences for pronghorn and wildlife but this is primarily being done on private property so the fences do get a major upgrade as well and it's at no cost to the rancher so um you know the ranchers have come to realize too hey you know these hunters that i let come on my property to hunt or actually pretty good people too no kidding that's amazing yeah so so i got a sorry I gotta, go sorry ahead. chase i'm gonna cut in there uh got a question for you tj about the like do you ever have any like blowback or anybody giving you guys pressure about doing these projects like am i i'm fairly green to the project in itself but i i would just assume that you know before you guys start changing out that bottom wire there was damage fences from antelope and whatever else um, but do you ever have any like blowback from anybody else that's saying like, why are you guys doing this? Or like, is the ranchers and everyone else usually like for it? Let's just get it done and uh, carry on. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of ranchers were pretty skeptical when we first started, like setting a wire at 18 inches for some operations is pretty high for a lot. It isn't, but you know, some guys are worried about their calves getting out, especially young calves. And um, what a couple of ranchers have told us is the great thing now is yeah, calves occasionally crawl under them, but they can crawl back in too. And, and calves are going to get out. So I think the lucky thing in the, in the beginning was, is we started working with a couple of really large landowners in southern alberta you know guys that owned 100,000 plus acres kind of thing and were very influential in the community 
And, you know, we showed up and I mean, I remember that first project on, we were all green as grass, didn't have a clue what we were doing, but man, we got in there, we got the job done. And at the end of it, he became our biggest ally. So it's been through word of mouth that we've really expanded. And then we work in uh, cooperation with the Alberta Conservation Association on this project. So they do the science on it and they do a lot of the landowner contacts and they have a project called Multisar. And it's a project where they work with landowners to do wildlife projects already on their property. So for the landowners that are already doing wildlife projects on their property, it, it's not a big sell to them to modify their fences. Right. And I guess my kind of follow-up question is what are we looking at um, approximately like price? Like what does it cost? I mean, yeah, you said that everything's volunteer, but I mean, material and equipment and stuff costs money. Do you guys have approximate costs on what it costs for like do a mile of line? Type of uh, yeah. We're, I'm trying to think we, we're probably looking at about, um, yeah, probably about like a thousand dollars a mile. So when you compare that to, you know, if you were building new fences, you'd be looking probably ten to fifteen thousand dollars a mile. Right. So yeah. obviously, obviously, a lot of the ranchers or, or farmers or something not only see you know the benefit of an upgraded fence, but it's also you guys checking fence, doing everything else for them. So there's obviously a lot of appreciation there. Well, absolutely. And our motto always is we leave the fences better than when we arrive. So if there's any breaks in the wire, wired down, garbage strewn around, it's all cleaned up, the brakes are fixed. And most of the landowners are just shocked when we leave how good a condition we leave things in. That's unreal. It's amazing. Um, I, I've, I've done a little bit of research into this and it seems like uh, the things are still evolving a little bit on, on uh, you know, the exact kind of configuration of the fence the 18 inches off the off the off the ground is obviously a big factor for antelope but there there's still seems to be some some spacing with like the top wire and the, the other three wires and whether or not they're barbed or smooth or electric or or banded or or um visual kind of cues on them um but in your area it's primarily focused on pronghorn and is it is it is there any other like major focus or anything on, on like elk or whitetail or mule deer? Yeah. So I do some other smaller projects um, on typically conservation lands that don't have pronghorn on that may have elk and moose and whitetails. And what we're typically doing with those, I mean, the ideal situation for a, for a cattle fence that works great for cattle, plus is a lot more friendly to wildlife would be a bottom wire at 18 inches, smooth wire, a smooth wire set at 40 or 42 on top. And then between the top wire and the next wire down, you want a one foot spacing. And the reason for that is when animals jump over it and they happen to hook their back legs, when those wires are spaced pretty close, it's pretty easy to wrap that second wire down around their hind legs. They get trapped in the fence and die. Yeah. So where if that wire is, if there's a good foot space in there, then those, even if they catch their back legs, they don't typically become entangled. And if there's no barbed wire on that top, um, they also find the interesting thing though, is, you know, a lot of guys set their fences at 48 or even 50 inches tall and they're always fighting with broken wires because even elk and moose have a hard time jumping and mm -hmm. they're very hard on fences so if we can ever convince them to get that top wire down to 40 or 42 it's still plenty for cattle like it, there's no problem for the cows but now the moose and the elk jump over it with a lot more ease and these guys are finding like their fence maintenance probably goes to 10 percent of it was when they had higher wires no kidding yeah. So, I mean, and that's the whole point of these projects is, is to make it work for the producer. Like we're not trying to make anything difficult for the producer or make him, you know, impact his bottom line at all. And, you know, and hopefully we can actually help him improve his bottom line, but yeah. still be wildlife friendly. Yeah. Sounds like a no brainer to me. 
Yeah. Um, one interesting thing I, I did read too was like the 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 visual kind of um, indicators on the fencing as well is actually beneficial for like waterfowl and upland game birds. So I imagine uh, those those probably get focused in areas just like um, likely uh, aircraft crossing for for hydro lines or whatever. You <laughs> well, know, yeah. you, you put them at in apps. Yeah, absolutely a great point. And uh, we do a lot of work down in sage grouse area as well. And sage grouse are critically endangered in Alberta. So we definitely don't want them hitting fences. So in that case, we may put reflectors on the entire fence line to uh, you know help the sage grouse. But anywhere there's waterfowl, you know, where there's, there's a high flight path, like you say, into a wetland or something like that. Uh, so there's a couple of companies now that it's basically just vinyl siding for houses. And then they put reflector strips on it. It clips right onto the wire. So it's super easy to install. And hmm. um, so we have been using those as well. And another thing we're finding with big game and making fences a lot more visible is, is keeping our post spacing a little bit tighter. So we're using 16 and a half feet um, as the maximum post spacing we're using it. And that way it's, it's much easier for you know, deer and elk and things like that approaching a fence to realize that there is a fence and wire across it. Right. That's, that's interesting too. Um, circling back to the, to the, um, to the birds for a second too, is one, I just want to put this stat out there. One thing that I, I did read was like, uh, the, the fencing with the indicators on it actually reduces the, the, um, conflicts with sage grouse at least like 70% there were, they were saying in over 80% in a lot of instances, which is phenomenal. Yeah, for sure. And especially, you know, when you've got 50 birds in the province, you kind of want to protect them all. So th yeah. that's where it's, you know, it's really come out of, but you know, we have been using it for the waterfowl as well. No kidding. That's awesome. Um, what I got a quick one here for you, Chase. Sorry to yeah, go you for it. Again. Yeah. Two in a row, two in a row for me, but uh, TJ, I'm, like I said, I, I'm not a cattle farmer by any means, but in my mind, I just think like back in the day, these uh, men and women put up fences to keep their cows in and things really never changed. So obviously part of your program is a little bit of education. Um, like, do you guys do that as a group, like um, like face to face with farmers or have like uh, talks or do you guys have presentations? Like where can you find some of this information if say any type of farmer throughout the country was uh, building up a new fence? Like what, what are some things that they can look into? Yeah, so great question. And the Alberta Conservation Association just published um, a manual on wildlife friendly fencing. It's quite a comprehensive manual and you can either download it online or um, just AB-conservation and or you can order a hard copy of it and it's a great start for people and it kind of goes through you know where you are what you're trying to contain and what you can do the really the cool thing we found is down where we're doing the pronghorn fencing now is pretty much anybody building new fence even neighbors that we haven't done projects on are doing it to our specifications so there's, there's been that real word of mouth um Paul Jones from the Alberta Conservation Association, he gets out and does presentations quite often in rural communities and things like that. So you're right. I mean, things, some of the fences we're working on are probably 80 or hundred years old. So they have been done the same way, but, it, but it's kind of neat to see, like even some of the fences that are 60 or 70 years old, I mean, yes, they have barbed wire on the bottoms, but a lot of them were set at 18 or 20 inches on the bottom. So they were obviously cognizant of the fact that 
pronghorn didn't jump and needed space to crawl under. So, you know, I think there's always been landowners that have been wildlife friendly. And really when it comes down to it, like I would say 99.9% of the landowners out there are very wildlife friendly. Mm -hmm. And if you can introduce methods to them that don't impact their bottom line, I mean, they're all over getting involved. Yeah. I was, I was going to say the exact same thing actually is that, you know, just having conversations with farmers and talking to them about things that could benefit wildlife, but not necessarily impact their bottom line is, is, uh, huge for wildlife, but not only that, but they, they, they almost seem, um, happy to do it, you know? And Oh, absolutely. Like you, there isn't a farmer out there. I'm sure who, you know, doesn't like seeing a deer or an antelope. I mean, you know, maybe they don't like seeing 400 elk in their field, but, yeah. uh, they, yeah, there is a happy balance for sure. Definitely. Um, now, um, this is something that you've been working on from a provincial level. What what kind of, uh, ha, has this been spreading around kind of nationally or internationally? What what kind of, uh, what have you been hearing? What have you been seeing? Well, it has been. And um, like, I know like Paul Jones from the Alberta Conservation Association, who kind of heads the antelope part on their side, um, has done quite a few presentations um, south of the border. I know Saskatchewan's been talking about getting involved as well. And I, I think, you know, we're not doing anything new here, but what we are doing that's amazing is doing it all with volunteers. And, and that's where everybody's kind of coming to us and going like, how the heck are you doing this for so little money? Uh, Wyoming's actually doing a, a ton of it right now. And they're removing a bunch of fences and things like this. But, you know, probably 90% of that is, is being done by, you know, paid employees kind of thing. So what we're doing with volunteers is, is pretty good. The other thing, too, is the province in Alberta has got on board, too. Like, we don't receive any funding from the province. We don't work, you know, in conjunction with any of the province at all. This is all done by two nonprofit groups. But the province has really adopted these standards and on some of their larger grazing leases now and things like that, they're starting to adopt these new fencing guidelines, too, which is which is really welcome to see. That's awesome. Man, all that all that chat about uh, wildlife and, uh, and fencing and, and a little bit about elk. Um, Sheldon, do you have any more questions on, on the fencing side of things before we move on here? No, I think, um, my fencing questions are pretty much done. I'm waiting for the elk talk now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we are ramping off. We're, we're about a couple of weeks away from the, the open archery, opening archery season in Manitoba here. And, uh, I, I always feel like, I mean, the whitetail season is, is, is a big opener, but I feel like the elk opener is always like the holy grail of um, hunting seasons to be open. So um, we're just coming up to that right now. And uh, TJ, you, you spent the better portion of your life chasing animals around, chasing elk around in the mountains. Um, what are some, some tips that you can toss out there to folks that uh, are either A, just getting into the elk woods, or B, you know, maybe experienced elk hunters that something you can pass on to them? Well, I mean, like to me, food is everything for elk. And, you know, whether you're talking agricultural areas or, you know, in the mountains, you need to have good sources of feed and, and elk are i don't know they're, they're just inherently lazy to me in the fact that they always want to be near good food and and more so than a lot of species you know i, I find even mule deer in the mountains um, you know sheep goats like that they live on pretty marginal range to be safe but elk if they can find good feed i mean they may travel two or three miles to find it every day but they will be on the highest sources of protein that you can find so you know 
where we hunt, like we hunt kind of in the foothills, it's, it's agricultural country. And it, for most of the summer, the elk are more on the native grasses. They're up in the trees, they're, they're hiding. But, you know, even we were out last night looking and we looked at a herd of a hundred elk last night and they're right in the middle of the pea field. And, you know, they're not living there by any means and they're traveling to get there after dark and they're, they're leaving before dark in the morning, but uh, guaranteed they're only a couple miles away. So that would be the first thing I would really recommend anybody is find the best available sources of feed. And I don't care if that's the September 1st opener. Uh, we do a lot of really late season elk hunting. We used to do a lot of like late November hunting in the mountains when nobody else even wanted to go up there, mm-hmm. but guaranteed those elk could be on those big wind blowing slopes where there was feed. And there is, to me, there is not more of a glutton in the world than an elk. And maybe then an elk is, is a group of elk are the biggest gluttons you'll ever find. So what I typically find is, you know, our season opens September 1st here for archery. You're going to typically find a bunch of smaller groups of elk. So you're going to find one bull with, you know, probably 20 cows and there may be two or three satellite bulls working him. And that'll kind of go from like early September and that'll last right up till the end of September. So, you know, and I think the big attraction for hunting in September is calling. I mean, Mm -hmm. You know, we shoot a lot of elk in November just because they're pretty easy to pattern in November, but I love calling elk. And so, so I think the, the two best times for calling are me and everybody thinks the heat of the rut is the best time for calling. It's not the best times to call are when that bull's looking for cows. And once he's bred all of his cows and looking for more cows. So I love this first week, this is September 1st, like last year, September 1st, we beagled in three bulls on opening morning and okay. we just had bulls going everywhere. They were screaming but, and there was kind of cows there, but nobody really established dominance over the herd. So if I had recommendations for people, it's don't worry a lot about when you hear the elk doing a lot of bugling, it's get them bugling early. So this, this first week of September, even right up till the 10th or 12th, I really like. And then that first week of October is probably one of my favorite times and, and to kill big bulls, especially because what happens is, you know, that big bulls had his harem for, you know, that month and he's bred all the cows there. And now a lot of the satellite bulls are all starting to come in and he's just like, you know what? I don't want to fight anymore. There's nothing here to fight over. So he takes off, but there's always going to be some cows that didn't get bred. So he's looking for those one or two cows and, um, so that's when I do a lot of cow calling is in that late season, early season. I love to bugle, um, but even still, and that's one thing about calling that I think has been really successful is I used to be able to locate elk, but once I've located them and, you know, got them working a little bit, I almost switched strictly to cow calls. And um, one thing we did last year was got a cow decoy oh. and that was a game changer like a montana decoy or we did yeah and it was it was an absolute game changer so uh we'll be using that a lot more this year nice that's amazing um uh so kind of a breakdown for for the two different uh season that that you like to call out there so um at the start from what i understand is like the the elk are looking for cows like you kind of said the bulls but they're also kind of trying to size each other up the the bulls right so um even though they might not be breeding right at that time they're still kind of looking to see who's in their neighborhood and who are they gonna have to go toe-to-toe with yeah so that's when i love to get up on those big ridges and just i like 
to be out, you know, right at first light bugling. And then again, kind of that late afternoon, I, I don't really hunt elk too much in the afternoons. I, I find it, you end up spooking more elk than you're ever going to kill. So, um, you know, it can be hard for like, we're pretty lucky. Like I can go out for two hours in the morning, come home, do a day's work, then go back out in the afternoon and hunt. So it's, I'm a little bit easy and a little bit <laughs> spoiled that way, but, um, I do find if you're, if you're tromping around a lot in the woods in the afternoon, the elk, especially when it's warmer out, the elk are typically quiet and you're going to end up spooking a lot more. So really work those shoulder hours, morning and evening. Use those inquiry bugles. So it's just big, long, classic elk bugles. Mm -hmm. And if you get an answer, don't answer them back. Go to them. Um, elk love to talk. They'll talk back and forth with you all day long, but it's hard to bring elk in from a long ways away. Like they, they have no reason to come a long ways. I mean, it happens occasionally, but most of the really successful elk countries I know, as soon as they get an answer, they go to the elk and they try to get as close as they can without spooking them. But all of a sudden, if you can get in, you know, 50, 60, 70 yards from an elk and then start calling again, now he doesn't have an opportunity. You know, if he's got cows, he doesn't have an opportunity to gather them up and leave. He has to face you. You know, if he's looking for cows, he's going to come see what you are. And he really doesn't have an opportunity. A lot of times to even get the wind on you or anything. So I'm a big believer in staying super mobile when I elk hunt. So, you know, get up on a high place where that elk bugle is really going to carry. And then from there, once you get elk working. So, I mean, last year we were, we had bulls, you know, 30, 40 yards. We were just totally surrounded. They were all screaming at each other and we had the decoy up and, <laughs> you know, it, it was totally amazing, but that's not uncommon uh, for early season. And I just want to tell a, a quick story about last year too. Um, there was a group of about 25 elk bedded right in the middle of a quarter section of hay. And there was nothing, like there was no way to get close. So we got about 300 or 400 yards away, however close we could get without being detected and uh, called a few times and they were just all laying out there and there was no interest in coming. We popped that cow decoy up and that bull came 300 yards, just like he was on a string. No so th that was kind of what sold me. And then another time there was three actually satellite bulls rode in the field, just feeding. And we ended up walking like right across. We probably walked a kilometer and a half through wide open field. The two of us hiding behind this elk decoy and ended up getting 40 or 50 yards away from them. So wow. uh, I haven't used it a lot, so I don't really want to talk a lot about, you know, <clears throat> my experience with it, but the little bit of experience we had last year was just absolutely unbelievable. That's amazing. Um, it's it's pretty crazy how you talk about that there, TJ, because Chase and I, uh, a couple of years ago, we were in the elk woods and one of my, well, it was probably about my second elk hunt. And that's exactly what we kind of found out on our own. Um, our first encounter, we actually called a bull in to, um, you know, probably a hundred yards and, and then we, we messed up totally. Um, but then after that, there was three or four other encounters where we basically located them and we were putting on miles, like walking and we'd cut that distance down and once we got into that basically his zone and made one quick call he turned and he was coming right for us until you know we weren't successful of shooting one but we were definitely successful locating and getting on them and getting eyes on them and in my mind as a it was my second archery elk hunt like that was a very successful hunt other than we didn't uh, bring home any meat but that's very interesting how you uh, how you pointed that out absolutely and i'm just a big like just pressure 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 on them like just don't give them any option but to come to you and if you can start so i mean that's another good point is once you get in close and um you know all of a sudden you've got cows all around you and you got bulls screaming and cows chirping that's a really good time to just put that bull call away or you know use it sparingly 
and really start using that that cow call because i mean the biggest insult to a herd bull in the world is him losing two or three of his cows to another bull so you know if you can kind of let a little bit of a bugle out and start working the cow call a whole bunch from the same spot and he thinks hey there's a few of my cows over there that's when you're going to get like bulls don't want to come in and fight i mean especially those big herd bulls they're not looking to fight at all but they will come to get their cows back and the other thing i was going to mention too is you you did mention earlier about um, like your food source, finding high protein. The, I, d- I do want to just say too, is um, my, my buddy hack, he's been on the podcast before he was successful in elk hunt last year. And we did a lot of like e-scouting on iHunter app. And we kind of knew where the, the location of this herd was, but we weren't really familiar with where they're going at night or in the morning to feed. We basically got on this app and started looking at all the agricultural areas and, and noticed that there's this one full section of corn so we kind of focused on that to get in there um, preseason just to scout it. And yeah, sure enough, that's where they're coming. So, you know, like that three miles that you you said earlier, like they, yeah, they could travel three miles, but I guess um, a good pointer, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you know that bush or whatever area they're hanging out in, you could be looking for miles on either end or all around that bush to see where they're coming, I guess. But, uh, yeah. And, and that is, you know, and that's a good point too, is, I mean, they will bed a long ways from their feet. It's enough to go, like you say, two or three miles to bed. Um, and elk are terrible for becoming nocturnal if they're pressured. So that's, I guess, part of the key is, I mean, locating the food source first. And then second is, is locating that bedding area where they're going back to, but, you know, typically they're getting back to that bedding area. It's, you know, legal light. So, and that's a great time to call. And a lot of times they may not even leave that bedding area till, uh, you know, just last lighted, but you know, they'll walk two or three miles across a wide open field to get to food. So it's, it's not like, you know, like whitetails, it's always easy to find those pinch points, right? Like, you know, if, if there's a strip of bush comes down, you can guarantee that whitetail is going to walk down that strip of bush. They'll, they couldn't care less. They'll walk through the middle of a field for two miles if they're going to feed. And these ones actually we watched um, last night. That's exactly what they were doing. They were coming from a, a high ridge and it was about a mile and a half to a pea field. And it was just a mile and a half of wide open country. And they do that walk every day. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it, once you're able to kind of pattern these elk and, and you, you find their food source, is it um your your preferred way to hunt them do you, do you hunt them close to the food source or you do do you hunt them try and find them like um in uh in transit to the food source kind of back in the bush or wherever it may be yeah like i like to hunt them right on the edge of their bedding areas because that's typically where there is good cover um you know they're typically in there during legal hunting hours and that's a lot of problems with this food sources is a lot of times they aren't there at legal hunting hours right and you know they don't always take the same route back and forth. And if you've got a group of, you know, 40 or 50 elk moving, you know, trying to get the bull out of that herd with your archery hunting is, can be really tough. So that's why I like to get set up just in those, those fringe areas uh, where they go to bed. And I don't like to get too deep into it. Um, Cause I, I don't want to spook. Cause you can spook them out. There's no question. If you yeah. put too much pressure on them, they'll move. But if you can keep working those fringes, keep bugling them. And, you know, if you have a close encounter, a lot of times I'll give them a day or two off just to kind of relax and mm-hmm. um, give that. So, I mean, last year, you know, we worked bulls every day for probably the two first two weeks of the season. And then I I think we called one bull after that the whole rest of the year. So when they're there, you know, take the time to work them, try not to spook them out. But, um, you know, sometimes you're sharing areas with other hunters that aren't as careful either. And, you know, that's what happened to us last year. Yeah, for sure. So me 
trying to put myself in like a, a, a very new hunter's shoes and you talking about uh, going after them kind of on the fringe of their bedding areas. What are you looking for when you're going in there and how do you find these areas from the food source? Yeah. So, I mean, where we are, um, they love to bed up on timbered ridges. Um, and it's funny, the bed right on top of them where we are, we have some big, very flat topped ridges here, but they're fairly heavily timbered. So I, I think they feel quite secure up there. Um, when I'm hunting the mountains, I'm typically looking for um, north facing slopes. And north-facing slopes, if you spend a lot of time on the mountains, are full of blowdown, they're dark timber, they're the ugliest places you can ever walk on a mountain. And that's where I'll go to bed. They'll go to the south-facing slopes to feed because it's more open, there's a lot more grass. But if you're in the mountains, guaranteed they're going to be on that north-facing. But they always seem to like elevation. And, and I think it just plays into, well, I mean, it plays into a couple things. So when they move back there in the mornings, then you're starting to get those thermals. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't matter which way the wind's blowing, guaranteed that it's going up to them. So anything approaching them from the bottom, which is typically where their predators would come from, they're going to get that wind first. So I, I think that's why they really like to bet on higher spots because it's not necessarily because they can see, because when they're in that dark timber, a lot of times you can't see, you know, 10 or 15 yards even, but they really play their noses. You know, a whitetail may be more, um, you know, in tune with its nose than an elk, but I don't know, like they're, they're pretty equal. Like you can screw yeah. up on a lot of animals, but you can't with an elk. Yeah. That, that's the one thing too, that, uh, we've certainly learned and that a lot of people, a lot of seasoned elk hunters, uh, through conversations has kind of told us that like, you can, you can fool their ears, you can fool their eyes, but as soon as they get a uh, sniff of you, they're pretty much out of there. It's game over. Yeah, and that's what I find a lot of times too when I'm bugling. If you know, if I don't get in hard enough to pressure them, where I give them kind of the luxury of, you know, not being too worried about me, every time they'll come around and get the wind on you before they'll show themselves. But you know, if you can get in and force their hand, that's kind of when you can get them to screw up. But if you give them time, guaranteed you're not going to see them, you know, before they smell you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I want to circle back around here for a quick second again, back to the, the early season and the, the later season um, hunting tactics. Um, are your, your calling tactics pretty much the same then, or are you changing your aggression up in between those two times, or how does that work for you? Um, I bugle a lot more like late in like that, or that first week of October, I bugle a lot. Um, and I find the elk group, they're a little more aggressive at that point. I think they've, you know, they've bred hard. They've kind of fought with other bulls, you know, satellite bulls for a month. So they're just sick and tired of other bull elk. So I do find they're a little more aggressive. They're a little more willing to fight, but at some point you still need to convince them you have cows. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I probably, you know, 80, 20 on cow calling in early September, and I'm probably, you know, 60, 40 on bull calling, uh, late in the season. And the thing about late season is, um, food doesn't matter anymore to the, if you're looking for big herd bulls, um, if you just want to kill an elk stick with those cows that, um, that herd bull left because guaranteed there's going to be two or three satellite bulls move in there and, you know, figure, look at me, I'm the herd bull, even yeah. though there's not a cow left, but he'll stay with them probably right till late October. So, and they get pretty easy to kill. They're, they're super insecure. They're hard to call, but a lot of times you can sneak right in them. But if you're looking for the big, big herd bull, uh, forget about food, forget about everything else late season and just start. And they wander the ridges like, and they'll call a lot off ridges. So we're pretty fortunate where we are. Like we've got, you know, 20, 30 mile long ridges where we hunt elk. 
man, those elk will just wander those ridges constantly. And, you know, we'll see a lot of bulls that we've never seen before, um, you know, well, you know, early October. And then kind of once you get into November, um, we've just got all kinds of bulls showing up that uh we've never seen before like three years ago i killed a like a cranker of a bull in november that nobody'd seen before so hmm. you know where he came from where we hunt it's it's a pretty agricultural area and not a lot of elk make it past three years old we've got a, a three-point minimum on our bulls here so pretty yeah. much everything gets killed at two or three and you know we've been pretty fortunate the last few years to kill quite a number of good six-point bulls and it's just bulls showing up out of nowhere and i think we're just starting to pattern that unpatternable elk now if yeah. that makes sense you know we're just waiting for those elk moving in and everybody says man you must have the best elk hunting spot in the world Do you guys kill a lot of big bulls there well last year we probably spent 45 or 50 days hunting elk so yeah. it's just a matter yeah of so, so i always tell people i don't really know a lot about elk hunting i'm just really stubborn put in the time yeah exactly <laughs> no kidding um Jeez, that that uh, you talking about the the new bulls moving in after the rut there, um, or later on in the rut even uh, really reminds me of whitetail hunting too, and a lot of the the stuff that we see because it's easier for us to, around here to really monitor the the whitetail rut and the white our whitetail area is a lot closer than than our elk hunting area is. So, um, but it's the same kind of thing, you know. Towards the end of November there, you get bucks showing up that you had no idea were there that. You know, you have seen the same old crew all summer right till November and then after uh some of those does start getting bred, then the the new guys start showing up. Well, I mean it's interesting. We hunt a property that's about twelve hundred acres and you'd be lucky to see a whitetail on there in August, like, like a single deer and come November, it's just a real rutting area. So, I mean, you're hundred percent right on that. So, I mean, we run trail cameras all summer and fall and everything else. And it's like, man, this is depressing. And then, you know, all of a sudden there's a giant whitetail there one day. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Sheldon, any last, uh, questions on the, on the elk hunting side of things before we kind of wrap up here, pal? Uh, no, I don't think I do actually. Uh, well, I, I probably do, but I don't want to take all of TJ's time tonight. I'll be, I'll be done all my beer over here. <laughs> yeah, we could pick his brain all night on that. Yeah. Um, well, TJ, uh, I, I kind of got one last big question for you here before um, we let you go. Um, you know, you, you spent, as I alluded to before, a lifetime in the outdoors and uh, you, you've been in the media a long time, traveled the world with the outdoors. So you've had a really good look uh, at, uh, you know, not only what's happening here in North America, but a worldview of, of hunters and outdoorsmen for a very long time. And uh, my question is, as hunters and outdoors Sorry, I shouldn't say outdoors, man. I should say outdoors people, outdoors folks, because there's a lot of great women hunters and outdoors people out there as well. But as hunters and outdoors folks, are we headed in the right direction? And are we staying afloat amongst others, I guess, is what the real ask is. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's such a, and it, I always struggle with this. Like, It's so easy to go somewhere else and take our North American values with us. And it doesn't work. Like it, it just doesn't work. Um, you know, we're pretty fortunate in North America. You know, we're quite an affluent society. None of us worry too much about where our next meal is coming from. If we don't kill a deer this year, we're, you know, we're still going to eat well. Um, so we can allow wildlife to exist on the landscape strictly for intrinsic value. I mean, just because we like to look at it and everything else. So it doesn't need to justify itself. Where you go somewhere like Africa, 
every square inch of land there is precious. And, you know, if there's a springbok eating grass on it, that springbok better have a value. Uh, because if he doesn't, there's a goat that could be put there that would. So that's the one thing I, I do struggle with a little bit is, you know, I, I find a lot of people who aren't familiar with, and I, I was probably no different, you know, until I'd actually traveled a lot, but a lot of people try to, you know, put their values we have here in North America on every other hunting culture. And I think if there's one thing, I guess, to get back to your question is that's one thing we're doing wrong as hunters. We need to realize that every place is different and every place has to manage their wildlife according to their, you know, their social needs, their monetary needs and everything else. And I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, the ranch we hunt on, I mean, he tolerates a hundred elk on there every year and, you know, a bunch of whitetails and everything else where that doesn't happen in Africa. And, you know, there's other parts of the world um, that doesn't happen. On the flip side of that, it's 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 a great thing living in North America. We we can enjoy wildlife that doesn't need to have value, mm-hmm. um, you know. I, and there's, we're so blessed here. And, and the more I travel, I guess the more I realize how blessed we are. Um, you know, even you go to Europe and places like that, you have to belong to a hunting club, you have to pay to hunt, and things like that. And you know, I'm not making a judgment right or wrong on it. Um, it's, it's just the way their hunting culture has evolved. Their populations are so big. Their land base is so small. It's kind of the only way wildlife has survived. So it's not right or wrong. It works for them. But, you know, it's not the model that North America goes by. And, you know, damn, I'm happy about that. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy to phone a farmer up and say, hey, can I come hunt? And he goes, yeah. And I don't think we as hunters in North America just realize how blessed we are to, you know, have that system in place. And I mean, we are slowly losing it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, every year, you know, certainly south of the border, you know, paid hunting is, is becoming much more prevalent. Um, You know, and I guess landowners at some point are kind of going to go and I'm just actually working on an article right now about how hard it is for farmers and ranchers in the West this year, just because of the drought and everything mm-hmm. else. And, you know, all of a sudden they've got four or 500, you know, hunters phoning them over the course of the hunting season. Can I come hunt? Can I come hunt? Can I come hunt? And they're like, why would I let you? I'm, I'm going broke here and you want to come use my land for free. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge rabbit hole to go down and I don't yeah. want to comment on it either way. Cause I think there's a lot, but right now I think we just really need to realize how blessed we are. The opposite side of that, though, is um, I think a lot of our game management could be a lot better at a government level. And until you lose something, you don't value it is, is kind of what I life and had to bring it back. Then it has a lot of value because, holy man, we lost this and we brought it back. So now we have to protect it. We've been so blessed here for so many years to be just overrun with wildlife. I don't think we truly appreciate um, what it's done. So a lot of time our, our management uh, reflects this. And I, I don't want to come down on the individual biologists or anything like that. I mean, this is much higher government policy. Mm-hmm. But I think we as hunters need to do a better job of, of pushing our governments to manage our wildlife better and that means creating more hunting opportunities absolutely but it's it's much broader than that i mean it's it's much broader than than hunting in general so i guess if i had to leave it with a with a couple words it's like don't try and force what we do here in north america on any parts of the world don't judge how people hunt in other parts of the world because until you've been there you don't understand it we need to support what they're doing there because chances are they're doing it right for where they live and we really need to appreciate and we need to conserve what we have left here. Awesome. Sheldon, any final words, buddy? Yeah, I have a few final words here. Is uh, TJ, you kind of 
were speaking about how we uh, are very fortunate to be in North America and be able to hunt uh, fish, be outdoors in North America. But uh, uh, on a standpoint, on a podcast, I think we're very fortunate to have guests like yourself to uh, to express your feelings and in your thoughts and and the wisdom. Like when we started Panoramic Outdoors, we couldn't imagine, you know, getting some of the guests we've had. And so um, thank you very much for taking the time to, to spend it with us. And and yeah, we need uh, a lot more people like you around to uh, to continue on the, a lot of these traditions and everything else that we we use as uh, outdoors people. So thank you very much. Uh, and you know, and it's been my pleasure. And I mean, you don't need a lot more guys like me. We, we need a lot more guys like you that are, you know, young, you're passionate and everything else. So, I mean, you know, you're the guys who need to come forth and carry that flame and, and make sure, you know, there's opportunity for your kids and grandkids down the road. Absolutely, man. Thanks again, TJ. And uh, good luck out there this fall. Thank you guys. And same to you. Take care. Well, there we go. That's episode 94 with TJ Schwanke. Um, big thanks for him. Big thanks to him for coming on uh, again. I will echo what I said in the, in the podcast, but just super great to have a guy like him on and, and expressing his thoughts and interests. A few things before we go and before I hand it over to Chase too, is that we do have um, our store fully stocked of hats. We've got some blaze orange uh, blaze orange toques. We've got some blaze orange hoodies that are being are on order and we should have a mid September. So if you do want to get a blaze orange hoodie for, for rifle season or black powder season or whatever you're hunting, or even just to wear or whatever, um, check out the, the website. It's www.panoramicoutdoors.com. We also have our t-shirts. We've got tank tops. We've got other sweaters and we also got a new crew neck, three different colors, camel, uh, like a gray color and then like an army green color. Super nice. And you probably need a new sweater for Thanksgiving. So go to our store and pick one up today. Um, Chase, do you have anything else before we let everyone go? Those crew necks are the bomb. I'll say that. Also, if you're like me and like the way your blaze orange around casually, you're excited about the blaze orange sweaters as I am. And uh, we also have a few uh, of our gooseneck uh, like buffs, face shields, whatever you want to call them, in stock. So uh, make sure you, if you're looking for one of those, to keep uh, either the sun off your face or keep your lips warm in the fall, go get you one. If you can't grow a sweet mustache like me, Chase, or Tristan, you might want to buy one. Yeah. Keep your lips warm. Keep your face hidden from those uh, those northern mallards flying over your blind or keep your face hidden from those whitetails walking down the trail pick up a pick up a goose neck from us today that's right well thanks again for listening folks and uh sheldon a few last words yep <laughs> yeah no you do the few last words because uh i don't know i can never remember them all right keep your leatherman sharp um keep your line in the water and keep your beer on ice keep your beer on ice i like that good one <laughs> <laughs>